What we're doing here, just as a quick recap, this is a fundamentals of prophecy overview. I decided to do this class because we were just doing an overview of the whole Bible. And then I started thinking about it. I started thinking about it. I think the Lord laid it on my heart because things that were really starting to pop more than ever. You know, so even when I was doing just the overview of the Bible, I was always bringing current events and we'd always wind up talking about the things that were happening. So I believe the Lord laid it on my heart to say, let's take a segue out and, and talk about how prophecy rolls out in the bigger picture, how it began and where it's going to end up. Now, we're not looking for the Antichrist. First of all, if you ever see the Antichrist, you miss the boat. <laughs> so you don't want to know who the Antichrist is. So we're not even supposed to really be guessing. But that is not the point of prophecy. And there are so many people who now are so beleaguered with the things that are going on around them. And I'm talking about Christians. They are so tired. And plus, there are these wolves in sheep's clothing who make a mockery out of prophecy. I told you I've been told by somebody very prominent that said that, Prophecy is divisive. It's divisive, really? So the point is people are, for whatever reasons, they're either mocking it, they're not giving it its due, they're marginalizing it. Okay, so what I want to do here is not just go over prophecy. We do that enough in the current events and some of the things I talk about here are on the edge. But what we're doing here, and I'm going to resume right now, is this point where, and you'll see I have some maps here, but we can't use that, unfortunately. We don't have a projector, so I'm sorry put your glasses on or whatever. I, I'm not going to use these maps too extensively, but they have maps of the Middle East. And the point is, is at the beginning of the book of Genesis, or in the middle of the book of Genesis, God talks about Abraham. Father Abraham, we all know about Father Abraham. And there are many conversations you can have about Abraham, who he was, what he did, why God called him, the people that came from his loins, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes. Okay, that's all part of prophecy because it all merges into the whole storyline right? But what, what I wanted to do was actually show you the, the underpinnings of prophecy beginning at that point. There's something that happens in the book of Genesis where Abraham meets these four kings. A lot of times, actually I've never heard it talked about in, in any context other than the fact that it happened. What I decided to do, because it is it really is a good map of the fundamentals of what prophecy is about, the flow of history, to know God's heart, his mind, his character, his plan in a general way by what the scriptures say about what has happened and why. And we talked about the number four, and I can't get into all of that again, but numbers do mean something in scripture. So we talked about those things. So what we did is we took the four kings, and in Genesis, those four kings are named. And there's a a, a very brief explanation of who they were kings of, the areas that they were of. If you take this and you look through documented history, you will find that these kings are the genesis or the basis of the four Gentile world powers as given by Daniel as an explanation to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There are four Gentile world powers, we agree? And there is one that will be sort of resurrected, which never really went, went away, the Roman Empire. And by the way, there's also a very strong, 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 as I'll say it's an illusion, because it's not really detailed, but Jesus actually says it, just as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, that in Daniel, at the end of these prophecies, he says, at the very end of the timeline of the statue, where you start with the Babylonian Empire, Actually, Egypt was before that, but it's not really part of the whole game. There's reasons for that. But Babylonian, Medo-Persia, the Greek, the Roman, and the end times, which is the revived Roman Empire. But it's a weird kind of empire where there's iron mixed with clay. 
and at the feet of a statue. Who would design a statue with feet that can't even hold up the weight of a statue of that massive structure of metals, right? Each of these metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron, have meaning in scripture. And I mentioned to you that bronze especially is one of those metals when you've, when you've heard of it where you say, you know, the heavens are as brass or bronze if you pray and you feel like your prayers aren't going to heaven. Bronze is a metal that's used in scripture to denote judgment. We talked about a mountain in scripture, which means a kingdom, a domain. Trees also mean in scripture domain. And you see a lot of these things peppered throughout scripture as metaphors for what God is saying, and they map into prophecy. Iron is used to show real strength, but iron is strong. It's used mostly in weapons in those days. Iron is a very strong sort of steamrolling government. They're very strong. They don't have a lot of character like gold and silver are metals. They're softer than iron, would we agree? But they have a lot more value. There's more intrinsic value. They're also prettier. There's more culture. There's more value in it as a currency, especially gold or silver. Iron is something that ain't pretty, but it does the job, correct? This is how you have to look at prophecies. And when you see these metals used in these four, but the four kings work out to be, as they migrate over time, remember, they're headed up by Satan. So Satan is manipulating these people which actually funnels into Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And out of that was the first real kingship. It was the first real kingship that actually was formed into a coagulated area of people called a city. When God had created the human beings, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He wanted people to move around because he said, to Adam and Eve, you and your progeny will subdue the earth. That's the job of human beings. But Satan has a different idea. The best way to destroy a group of people is to gather them into one place, subdue them with religion, subdue them with some kind of physical or psychological or other controls, get them into one place and smack them dead. Isn't that what Hitler tried to do? It was getting to the point where afterwards the Nazi engine was still around. It's still here. It's here in the United States and it's burgeoning again. But they were ecstatic that after the defeat of Hitler, guess what? All the Jews were coming home to one place. What better way to get them involved? Get them all in one place. You see this coagulation? We're going to talk about that today, but the point is, is we're tracking these four kings, and the major king that I'm going to finish making a point of today is the king of Elam. Now, those of you that were here will know that I make a point of the king Elam, and there's also others like the king of Tidal, which is the king of what came to be the Roman Empire. And actually, the Jewish people still call Tidal Rome, the king of the Goyim. We're going to talk about him in a second. We track the other three a little bit, but I wanted to make it clear because today, we're mapping in today, and we're taking these four kings. Where are we today in prophecy? That's what we want to know. Because most of us have at least a clue of what's going on in the Middle East. And they're all tied up into this worldwide cabal of bringing things to one world government. You're talking about the Vatican, which itself is a city-state. A kingship that has a city and a state. And we talked about what they're doing, how the United Nations, sowing all of this into one world government, is now making it clear with this new pope. They are in lockstep with what they are going to do. And I mentioned to you last week that there's the Millennium Project, I believe it's called now. I've got to paraphrase it. The Millennium something. Yeah, thank you. That's what it is. And it was in that article. Did you look it up? I did, but I didn't get very far. Okay, there's a lot there. 
Yeah, that's okay. But the point is, is that it's on the UN website and it's one of their pet names for a project that's going to do feeding the hungry around the world, clean water. But they are going to corral the world for the good of the world. And they're saying that the Vatican is in lockstep. We need one global governance. We need one financial system, one economic system, engine to run it all. And we need a global religion. That's what the Bible talks about. How close are we to this coming? Well, you know we're close. And no one's going to stop the train. It's a crazy train on the tracks. It's on God's track. And Satan is just at the engine, at the helm right now. But it is a track. The track was laid by God. So there are no exits. The train has to stay on the track. It's not like Satan's driving a car where he can just exit here, exit there, and take another highway. A track dictates when you're in the engine, you can go fast or slow. You can break the train or you can make it go faster. You can maneuver to an extent, but you cannot change the course you are on if you were riding a train or the captain of a train or the engineer. Is that correct? And if you're going to switch tracks, you have to coordinate with some central control to switch the track system so that you will be able to go off another track. So that's why I equate Satan's rule of this world as the ruling of a train. He is not just driving helter-skelter, although he'd like to. He can't. He's on a track. We have to see who laid that track, though. Because if you look at the way things are going, it's a crazy train on a track that's going off a cliff. That's the impression. But is it really who laid the track? And that's what we have to be sure of, and that's what prophecy is showing us. And these four kings, all the way back to the beginning of recorded history, as far as the Bible goes, right? Started laying that track, folks. And we're on schedule. And the termination point in the Middle East. Does that make sense? So we're tracking these four kings. So we're talking about the king of Elam. The king of Elam is very interesting for our conversation. You can't see it. Again, I apologize. But here's a general map of the Middle East. Here's Turkey. By the way, little Cyprus is having its little issues. Uh, That's a a, a test bed, by the way. It's coming. It's coming. Stealing their money directly. Why not? They'll lay down for it. Anyway, we won't get into all of that. But here's Syria. Here's Lebanon, and you know Lebanon is north of this little sliver, which you can barely see here, called Israel. And inside her is the Temple Mount, which is the apple of God's eye, the center of the landmass. It's the center of the world as far as God is concerned. And I said if you laid a map out of the world flat, you would pinpoint Jerusalem, and you'd see it's in almost the dead center of the landmass of the world. God ain't kidding. That's his place. That's his people. He's got a plan for them and that land. And we're going to talk about how this is winding up. But here's Iraq and here's good old Iran. We hear a lot about Iran today. The king of Elam, if you look at history, and I track this, and it's, it's easy to find. Matter of fact, I have a book of maps here. It's there. You can see it in the ancient maps. Elam really runs the area from north up into Kazakhstan, Kermenistan. But here's Iran. Here's the Caspian Sea. The southwestern area of Iran, Tehran is not in that scope. Tehran, the capital of Iran, is actually in the northeast area. There are prophecies against Elam. What is going to happen? There are also prophecies against Damascus. The only Damascus that has ever been, that has never ceased being a city. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the prophecies for Israel itself as a land, and of course the people as tied to that land. We're also going to talk about Egypt, a fierce ruler. God said at the end of days, right just before the end, he is going to send a ruler of fierce countenance to Egypt. Anybody familiar with that prophecy? Well, you will be because we're going to read it. It was not Mubarak. 
Mubarak was not that fierce a ruler. Matter of fact, it was because of him that Egypt was blessed because they, which was good for them, entered a peace treaty with Israel that lasted 30 years. You remember the war, or you may not remember it, but there was the war of 1973, the Yom Kippur War, and in 1967. Egypt was a major player in trying to destroy Israel in those times. They finally had a peace contract or compact with Egypt. And Mubarak kept it. Matter of fact, Mubarak made it illegal for the Muslim Brotherhood to be in that country. Who's running the show now? All right. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 24. The soon coming final disposition of Iran's southwestern area the border between Iraq and Iran is here, but Elam is still, so there's actually part of western Iran, the very far western area where it meets Iraq, that technically is not part of the Elam area. I'm just talking about back in the day. Back in the day, it was one landmass. Yeah, the Mesopotamia, the whole area. Yeah, the land of Shinar and all of that was one place. Yeah, Iraq and Iran, thank you. The Iraq and Iran were all one in those days. I have a book of maps here that show all of this stuff. But I'm trying to merge all of the things going on into modern day. Ezekiel 32, verse 24. Now, we're going to be doing a lot of reading here, and I want you now to stay focused. Whether you're looking at your Bible or not, just listen and stay focused. I'd rather you read with me, but if you decide not to, that's fine. Just listen, because God is telling us something here. And I want you to hear. I want you to listen. I'll parse some of the things for you. All right. Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 24. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. All right. There is Elam and all her multitude round her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, which are gone down, uncircumcised, into where? The nether parts of the earth, Hades, which is a real place, which caused their error in the land of the living. These people are the ones who caused the issues, most of the error in the land of the living. Yet have they borne their shame with them that go down to the pit. Same thing. They have set her a bed in the midst of the slain with all her multitude, her graves round about them, all of them uncircumcised. I mean, they're unclean. They're totally unsaved. Slain by the sword, though their terror was caused in the land of the living, yet have they borne their shame with them that go down to the pit. These people who are proud, like Ahmadinejad, we are going to destroy America. We are going to destroy, and they're proud. We will use Iran's might to take care of Israel. We will destroy her in one day. That's what they said. They don't know that the scriptures say that Damascus will be destroyed overnight. And this Elam, by the way, the destruction of Elam, which is this area of Iran, is tied to the destruction of Damascus in time. And think about what's going on today, folks. There is Mishak and Tubal. Mishak and Tubal is Turkey. Turkey was divided into four areas back in those days in the ancient maps. And by the way, we're going to see in Ezekiel 38, there is Mishak and Tubal, Turkey. So we're going to say there is Turkey and all her multitude. By the way, is Turkey a friend through Erdogan of Israel now? Remember Turkey was friendly with Israel for a while there. It was very westernized. Then President Erdogan or Prime Minister Erdogan came in. So Turkey's involved, and all her multitude, her graves are round about him, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Verse 27 of Ezekiel 32. And they shall not lie with the mighty that are fallen of the uncircumcised, which are gone down to hell with their weapons of war. And they have laid their swords under their heads, but their iniquities shall be upon their bones. They're going to final judgment. This is not ended for them. Though they were, see past tense here? 
These people are dead now. Though they were the terror of the mighty in the land of the living, the best and most prominent terrorists in Ahmadinejad and the whole Ayatollah Khomeini, all of these movers and shakers that are surrounding Israel, that are doing all these things, this is what's going to happen to them. And it says in 28, Yes, thou, you shall, be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and shall lie with them that are slain with the sword. He's talking to these leaders. You are going to get it just as badly as them. You think you're so smart, but you're going to have a worse judgment. Now, verse 29, there is, what does it say? You know who Edom is? Anybody know? Not you, because I know you know. I got to watch my family because they know, and I know they know because we talk about this all the time, but I want others to think about it. Edom's Palestinians. That's right. They're also called the Idumeans, and Herod was one of them, are the Edomites, which, by the way, is cousin with Israel. Esau. This is bad. So there is Edom, or the Palestinians, her kings, Mahmoud Abbas, Arafat, all of the others. Hamas, right? They're all uh, Palestinians. And all her princes, with their might, are laid by them that were slain by the sword. So again, they're all going to go down to the pit. That's what he's saying. Listen, go down to verse 31 here. So we're seeing that even these mighty, mighty warriors that have been plaguing Israel, and very successfully over the centuries, over the thousands of years rather, they seem to be making headway. And would you say if you looked at the current events, it seems that they are? Israel is surrounded. She's got the noose around her. All of this area is infested. But it says here, Listen to this, verse 31. Pharaoh shall see them. Where's Pharaoh now? In Hades, in the bad neighborhood. And all of these people are going down. You see how this is wrapping up? Pharaoh shall see them and shall be comforted over all his multitude. He's going to be glad that they're down there. Even Pharaoh and all his armies slain by the sword, says the Lord God. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that are slain. Pharaoh and all his multitude. So these people go back to the Pharaonic rulerships of those days. You see how God is saying, I'm taking care of this, folks. And what we keep having to say is, not is it true. We need to know what's happening. You see the detail he's giving us? All we have to say is, how long, O Lord? And he's given us a lot of detail, which we are privileged to know, right? This takes place in the midst of the Arab and Muslim world frenzy and the machinations toward the destruction of Israel. Isn't this what's happening now? Even though we're not looking at it, we still are focusing. This is where God wants to keep our eyes. Okay. Psalm 83. Anybody familiar with good old Psalm 83? You're going to be in a moment. There's a couple of you. Psalm 83. Turn there. Psalm 83, verse 1. Listen to this. How long, O Lord, how long? As he's setting up, I guess you could call it the stops along that train track, that this train has to pass through. You see how God's telling us, don't worry? All of this is going to take place, and all of these evil men and women are going to be judged. The leaders of them especially, they're all going to the same place, waiting for the great white throne judgment, right? Psalm 83 and verse 1, a song or a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a chief musician. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace and be not still. He's basically saying, please, let's do this now. Take care of the problem. How long, O Lord? For lo, or look, or for behold, thine enemies make a tumult. They're always in an uproar. Isn't that true? 
And they that hate you have lifted up the head, and I'll say in defiance. They have taken crafty counsel. They are taking counsel with the United States, with Europe, with the world leaders and the world bankers. They are ready to destroy Israel. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people. Would you say Obama is not against Israel? He's always taking up crafty counsel, always manipulating them. Always manipulating Here, we'll offer you these weapons if you wait. Don't touch Iran. Call Turkey. Apologize. You can't go into Iran by yourself. You need us. So you have to notify us before you go in. Oh, Israel has a right to defend herself, but you can't really do that until we set everything up for you. Missile shields, right? Iron Dome. The United States is all part of the deployment of that stuff because they couldn't deploy it without us. The crafty counsel and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come and let us, now listen to this, this is basically what they're saying, revealed in scripture, not a secret. Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, which assumes that they are a nation. And Israel has not been a nation from the year 78, well, actually later than that, it was the year 70 AD. It was pretty close because that's when they destroyed the temple, right? So we'll say that was the time. Until when? 1948. Let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more remembers. Would you say that they're trying to just push them into the sea? Wipe them out. Verse 5. For they have consulted together with one consent or in one accord. These Muslims, the Islamics, the Muslims, you know how many factions there are? The Shiites, the Sunnis, the Alawites, and many others, or there are a few others I don't even know. Do you think that they love each other? No. no. The enemy of my enemy is my and I will combine or I will ooh, consult together in one accord until our enemy is defeated and then they'll devour each other. But right now they are continuing, they are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites and the Moabites and the Hagarenes. The major players in this are the Edomites. Skipping to verse 12 in Psalm 83. These, the Edomites, the Palestinians, and all of these people you hear about railing against Israel, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. They're not fooling around, folks. They're going to take God's place. They're going to take the Temple Mount. That is what this land for peace garbage is about, right? You notice how they want to just get the Temple Mount. What does God say about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount? I will make her a what? A cup of trembling. And all of those nations who try to avail themselves of this, they will be cut to pieces. This is coming soon, folks. Verse 13. Oh my God, make them like a wheel, as a stubble before the wind. As the fire burns the wood, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with your tempest, and make them afraid with your storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name. You see what he's saying here? Get them to the point where they are going to repent. He hates the enemies, but he wants them to repent. That's what we're supposed to do. 
We love them in the fact that God can take anybody and turn them around. And it's their salvation. Because we read just before, didn't we read what God's going to do? Sending these people down to Hades with their weapons. And Pharaoh, more than happy to greet them, who's already there. But I do want God to come and take care of this because how long, O Lord? That's what I want. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish if they do not repent. And now listen, why? What's the key point here? Verse 18. That men may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. The only way anybody can really know that is if they are saved. Even Israel doesn't believe that. But you and I believe that. And what did Jesus say to Peter? When he says, who do men say that I am? Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're the promised coming of Elijah. The son of the living God. Well, you said it correctly. But you only know that because... That's right. Go to Isaiah 17, chapter 1. That's right. There's no difference here. But I'm just showing you exactly, and that's my point. What I'm showing you is there is no difference from the things we already know, but we're showing you that God lays out in detail what is going to take place through his prophets. And we know that this king, Elam, is one of the kings that Abraham fought. So the remnant of these people, of these kings, they never die. The whole remnant of this statue of Nebuchadnezzar, it's not going to die until when? The end of the dream where this mountain is made from a piece of stone or a piece of stone cut out of a mountain without hands that smites the image on the feet. The whole image collapses, goes like chaff into the wind. There's not a a piece of it to be found. And that stone grows into a mountain that covers the whole earth. Anybody know that dream from Nebuchadnezzar? Anybody know that? If you didn't know it, you should read it. You really should. Because that's the whole point of the four kings. That's what's going to happen. But we're reading the detail. That's the framework. That's the superstructure. Now we're seeing the detail that God gives us here. Okay. So we see what's happening with Iran and those that are involved, the Palestinians and all those. Isaiah 17, verse 1. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is what? Taken away from being a city and it shall be a... Right. The cities of Aor are forsaken. I have it up here. See Syria right here? Aor is right up there. Sounds like Eeyore, doesn't it? (laughs) Damascus is right here, right next to Lebanon. That's right. That's what he's saying. He's going to talk about Hamath too, which is still on the map. The cities of Aor are forsaken. So the destruction is going to reach from Damascus north all the way up to this area right by Turkey. They shall be for flocks which shall lie down and none shall make them afraid because there won't be any humanity there. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. What he's basically saying here, all of the embedded government and history and everything is going to be wiped out. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to this, verse 4. And in that day, what day? That day. It shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be, what? Made thin. And the fatness of his, Jacob's flesh, shall wax lean. When they have to attack Damascus, 
because we're going to see how it's going to roll out. Do you think that they're going to be safe from a retaliatory attack by Iran, by others? Jacob is going to be very badly affected here. Isaiah 17, verse 5. And it shall be as when the harvestman gathers the corn and reaps the ears with his arm, and it shall be as he gathers the ears in the valley of Raphaim, which is the dead, the valley of the judged. Verse 7. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. You notice he's saying, and here's what I want you to get out of this. Please, listen to this carefully. In that day, it says, a man shall look to his maker. You notice it's not saying, look to the Lord. It is my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but just seeing the way it rolls out. In that day, just like it says in the day of the tribulation, when men are suffering on this earth, they're not going to still deny God anymore. They're going to say, yeah, you exist. I'm still shaking my fist at you. Does that make sense? There's no repentance here. They're going to look, and as I shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. What it seems to me is that they're going to say, yep, okay, maybe. There's something going on here because of this being we call God does exist. That's just my opinion. But it also then speaks of later on that some of them may repent. And it says here in verse 8, And he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers made. Now, what that's saying here is it may not be repentance. What it's saying is they'll no longer look with surety on their idols. That these are their real gods. You see what I'm saying? That's what it says. It doesn't mean that they're going to repent. It's going to mean that, oh, maybe these wooden idols really are nothing. Maybe all the things like Allah, maybe Allah really isn't the God we thought he was. They better go tell the Pope. <laughs> In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bow and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Because you have forgotten the God of their salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shall you plant uh, pleasant plants and shall set in them. Okay, strange lips. Yeah, well, that's true. And the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief. What he's saying, like I think Rachel was saying, crop failures. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going to be bad right at this point. And of desolate sorrow. Woe to the multitude of many people. When Damascus is finally fired on, the whole area, the whole place is going to go up. It's going to go up. Jacob shall be waxed thin. That means the whole area is going to go up. Woe to the multitude of many people, which makes a noise like a noise of the... Remember, I also told you that the term seas in Scripture means the global set of nations at any given time. This is going to be a worldwide event when Damascus falls. And to the rushing of nations... Oh, it says it right here. And, and to the rushing of nations. I forgot that. It says it right here that make a rushing like the rushing, all going to be in a tumult. The armies will be ready and they will be coming in. Isaiah 17, verse 13. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And by the way, that maps into Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35 about this image. Finally, Isaiah 17, 14, and this is what I'm talking about. Listen to this carefully. And behold, in the evening, trouble. But in the morning, or before the morning, before the morning, he is not. That's less than a day, folks. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. Woe to the city of Damascus. 
There's going to be more of this next week because obviously we can't finish all this this week. Besides, you, you need a break from me now. We are close. We are close. And I implore you to read Psalm 83 again and in prayer. Think about it. Dwell on it. Read Isaiah 17. So what's happening at the end times when these kings have reached their final destination as they traverse through this statue, as they traverse out and end up where God says they're going to be ending up? We now know Elam is right here in tandem with what's going to happen with them, what's going to happen in Syria, what's going to happen in Egypt. There are going to be many hurting people soon. How close does it have to come to somebody? before they wake up. It's coming! Let's go. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. I know I don't want to be getting myself in trouble here, but I'm getting close to it, but I don't care anymore. I don't care. I'm glad I had a good seat. Are you? I should have bring a towel so you can wipe the spit off it. May God bless you all. <laughs>